Hello, my name is Ian Hayden-Smith and welcome to this special AMPS podcast with one of the nominees for the 2024 AMPS Film Awards. I'm here with Richard King, the sound designer and supervising sound editor on Christopher Nolan's highly lauded Oppenheimer. It's the continuation of a collaboration between Richard and Christopher that goes all the way back to 2006's The Prestige, and it has seen Richard win Academy Awards for The Dark Knight, Inception, and Dunkirk, in addition to his earlier Academy Award for bringing the sounds of a 19th century maritime world to life in Master and Commander Far Side of the World. Oppenheimer creates a world that exists on a spectrum that runs from the colossal to the infinitesimal. So welcome, Richard. Hi, Ian. Thanks for joining us today. And I, uh, hopefully we'll have, have time to run the whole gamut of, of the various sounds that were created for the film. Um, I thought it might be an idea to begin just discussing the initial conversations that you had with Christopher about Oppenheimer. Right. Well, I, I read the script uh, early on before he went up to shoot. And um, it was more of a general conversation about uh, the film, a lot of practical stuff, logistical stuff, timing, uh, scheduling, and so on. He, he uh, uh, really just mentioned a couple of things for me to start thinking about. Uh, the main thing was the um, were the subjective sounds that we would hear when we were specifically in Oppenheimer's head. His story is told from his point of view, but there are moments where we um, get a glimpse inside of his of his uh, turmoil, inner turmoil, and and conflicting feelings about um, about working on the bomb and, and the aftermath. Um, so what happened and then Chris went off the shoot and I went down the rabbit hole of reading everything that I could find on Oppenheimer and the Manhattan Project. And there's quite a bit written on it, on, on those subjects and that period of time. It was a, a fascinating journey. And I think even though the film is not a documentary by any means, it, it, it does use the facts in a dramatic way and um, everything in the film is accurate down to the tiniest detail or anecdote. Um, and uh, I, I, I marveled at his ability to create such a, uh, an interesting and compelling story without combining characters, making up characters, you know, he, he really pulled from all of that data that is available and and that and that the the um the authors of the book american prometheus um researched but chris even uncovered things of his own that they hadn't started um so um that they hadn't uncovered so it was um a fascinating process and then by the time he got back from the shoot in the fall um i really started working in earnest on on specifically first the sounds of Oppenheimer's sort of subjective perception of three or four moments in the film where we we're in his head seeing uh, as he's envisioning the quantum world, quantum particles, the particle wave duality of light, uh, and also his you know deep distress at at uh, uh, the dropping of the bomb, despite all the years that he had worked on the project, which was going to ultimately culminate in the dropping of a bomb. So he's a fascinating character to, uh, to learn about. And, um, 
very contradictory character in a lot of ways. Uh, so it was a it was a very enjoyable journey throughout. Let's let's stay with the subjectivity for a moment, and 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 just in terms of looking at uh, some of the previous films you've worked with Christopher on, and it, it, it's so it struck me that um, anyone who works on a Christopher Nolan film has to come on board ready to embrace the whole world of physics. You know, you've got entropy with Tenet, you've got wormholes with Interstellar. We're even going back to electric currents with with the Prestige and uh, the work of Tesla. Yeah. Um, yeah. What's fascinating on the very, very, very small micro beyond microscopic scale with this film, we we are literally witnessing um, physics at, at, in many ways at its most primal. Um, could you talk about the experiments you had of, of, of creating the sounds of, of what these particles were going to sound like for an audience? Um, yeah, that that was really uh, just a, kind of a, a process of going with gut feeling because um, uh, the concept is the idea was that we wanted to we wanted to kind of intimate the the tremendous power inherent in these tiny particles and these quantum events uh, of the of the four forces in the universe gravity uh, electromagnetism um, and the strong nuclear force and the weak nuclear force the strong nuclear force is by far the strongest of all of them and Oppenheimer was uh, became fascinated became obsessed with what would happen if we could gain access to that power so we needed to show sonically uh, Chris did visually, and and we needed to show to to present sonically the the notion that these um, events are tremendously uh, powerful. They're full of an enormous amount of energy, and you know you should almost get the feeling that you're not sure if you're looking at planets interacting or quantum particles interacting. That that the forces are equal in across that vast scale of of size. So we just kind of started at Friday night and we would send over test ideas to Chris and get feedback. And it was a kind of an evolutionary process. But I think we, we captured those pretty early because we had done a lot of thought on them. And um, one thing that I really enjoy doing in films is, is creating sounds for, for vast events or large events or powerful events it's the um the 12 year old in me that wants to um you know uh, make gunpowder and watch it blow up or uh or, <laughs> and, and so a, a lot of a lot of the sound a lot of sound work is as sound editors know is experimental when it's going with your gut on the on the premise and the idea that if i get a feeling when i listen to a sound i i i think many of the audience will as well so you know i use myself as the as the guinea pig initially. That, that, the idea of feeling is, is kind of fascinating because I wanted to ask about any discussions that you might have had about the, the emotionality of, of sound because, again, just going back to thinking about the prestige, um, one of the things I found fascinating about that film and the use of electricity in that film, the sound as well as the visuals created from it, is that it gave us a portal into the mind of these characters who were so fascinated by this world. And likewise, it struck me that w with these tiny quantum particles, what, what's amazing about them is, is that it's giving us an emotional entry 
into the characters' worlds, a, a, a sort of understanding why these scientists do what they do. It's not cold. It's something that they have absolute passion for. Was that a discussion that you had with Christopher and the team about this, the emotional aspects of it? Uh, not really. I think that came out in in the in the work. And and if if um, you know if Chris wasn't feeling it was emotional enough or strong enough or or I didn't, then we, we would keep plugging away at it. A lot of that emotionality, of course, is told in the in the story itself, in the in the words, in the in, in his describing, for instance, his his obsession early on in his life when he was studying in England um, with the nature of this unseen world, this theoretical world. Oppenheimer worked on this, the smallest uh, objects in the universe to the largest, uh, up to black holes. And there's so much passion in the movie and in Killian's performance that that carries a, a lot of the weight of, of passion and his obsession and he was consumed by this obsession with, with quantum particles, quantum energy. So let's let's jump to the other end of the scale and the the Trinity test. Um, could you talk uh, first of all about the bang, which is is something quite extraordinary to, to I've, I've seen the film three times now, twice in a um, IMAX cinema, and it's it's. It's a rumble in the cinema, let alone being on the set or being close to a satellite that being created. Uh, yeah, it, it, it um, and I think that bang is even more impactful because it's delayed as as physics would have would have it. Um, so the you know the audience is expecting the the sound when the picture happens or the flash happens. I think they're kind of taken aback and they have a moment of of a bit of. Chris has, has given them a moment of what probably this, many of the scientists there felt uh, of just kind of awe and shock. And that 30 or 40 seconds before the bang hits allows us to, to get inside Oppenheimer's head and, and all, of the, all of the witnesses and participants' head, heads. And then, yeah, the bang hits, and that's when everyone realizes, ah, we survived. The world didn't blow up. And it worked. So it needed to be something special because it was the biggest man-made explosion up to that time. There probably been larger events like volcanoes exploding or meteorites hitting the atmosphere or other natural events that, that would have created that level of sound. But I was inspired by many eyewitness accounts of the event. Within a day or so of the Trinity test, many of the scientists and and military officers who were who were witnesses were interviewed to get their first first reactions before they had, had really had time to digest to digest the experience and many mentioned sound in interesting ways and that was a i don't know if it was an inspiration but it was a it was a prod to use something other than a chemical just a chemical explosion that we've all heard a million times and just play it louder so we created a, a lot of sounds that had very, very sharp transients and um, with the idea that this shock wave would have, if you had been standing outside, it would have been, would have hit you like a wall of cinder blocks coming at you at the speed of sound. But with a very hard impact, made everything in the, in the bunker shake. Um, and 
behind it was this great wind sound that Jen Lane came up with a picture right of her, kind of all of the air being being pushed out by the shock wave. Um, I don't really want to say what we used for the actual bang, but it was a combination of of natural elements. They were all uh, recorded elements. And obviously, leading up to this, we we have a number of uh, what you might call more conventional, but still very very large explosions. Um, and and Christopher is renowned for being someone who loves his real time effects. Um, could you talk about the challenges of actually um, not just working with the the special effects team to create these, but but the actual logistics of recording these explosions? Because, because again, it, that Trinity test is amazing, but the previous explosions, some of them are quite extraordinary to hear. Yeah, they they didn't sound that great in in person. Um, <laughs> they were interesting, but they were they weren't using you know full charges, so those needed to be amped up a bit. But we did rec- we did record one of the explosions that they did, one of the test explosions that they did. They did a whole lot of, uh, I believe there was gasoline or, or uh, they they shot several of these explosions as elements to use for the actual atomic test. Um, we did record one of those, and, and uh, yeah, they're typically very short bangs, short, loud bangs. Um, and in order to put them in that place where the Trinity test was and where all these other tests were being done, they were burning canyons around uh, Los Alamos um, as they were testing the explosive lenses to see that they were indeed going to work. The sound is mostly about the environment in which the explosion takes place, right? So if, if it's in an open, a great open field, it's going to be a big bang with not much resonance, and it's going to be a very short event. It's in a valley or a canyon. Um, you get that kind of round boom that lasts a bit longer. Yep. One of the interesting things that I read about uh, that, that an eyewitness said in an interview about the Trinity test was that the sound lasted for a long time, that it was uh, a, a huge bang that rumbled like like some sort of weird man-made thunder for minutes afterwards. They were in a vast, very large canyon, but the, the sound just rolled around the canyon um, post-detonation. So yeah, explosions almost always need a lot of fiddling with and work and maybe pitch them down a little bit or, or add a, a, a couple of different reverbs to make them sound bigger and beefier. Um, like kind of like gunshots. They're, they're often not that dramatic in, in person. Um, so the trick is to make them sound, to give them the emphasis that you would feel if you were nearby, but not, uh, while, while not departing too much from reality. I want to stay with this section of um, the film because one of the things that um, I found really fascinating, a, a sound that um, struck me, was after we have this huge explosion, um, we see the bombs that are going to go off and uh, be dropped in Nagasaki and, and Hiroshima. Um, and it, it struck me how noisy the mechanics of placing these bombs on the trucks were, the chains. It, it, it's something we've gone from this incredible sophistication, this, this primal energy to suddenly something it's not mundane or prosaic but it it felt really really high in the mix <laughs> yeah yeah it, it 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 is funny that they 
you know, billions of dollars were spent to create these two objects and they just tossed them in the back of, or not tossed them, but they, <laughs> you know, they box them up and put them in the back of these two army trucks and then drive off presumably to uh, a harbor, Seattle, I think, where they uh, loaded them onto, onto um, ships. Uh, yeah, it is, very, it, it is very disjointed moment and Oppenheimer feels that he's suddenly, he's been the center of, of all the uh, attention and all the all the work for these years and suddenly he's kind of irrelevant he's no longer he's done his bit and he's he's no longer needed or or even really want and chris kind of wanted to create that haunted feeling i think of of um that he must have felt that my my purpose in life is is just just gone yeah he he wanted to change almost be a motif like they they do extend a little bit even into the following scene um, as kind of a dream memory lingering in his in, in his mind. That period of the film is is uh, is very much Oppenheimer now being faced with with the fact that the army's got to be things now, and God knows what's going to happen. They're going to be used, and obviously as a part of this uh, section of the film. Um, and and on a par with the explosion itself, then is is the party we see at Los Alamos and and how that plays out. Could, could you talk about discussions you had around that and creating that sequence? Uh, yeah, uh, I we created a, a whole lot of individual sounds, uh, elements, earth rumbling sounds that that convey the idea that Oppenheimer's kind of he's kind of. Um, He's in a in a period of in a moment of um, uh, confusion of of he's torn in two directions. He wants he wants the the bombs to be successful, but he doesn't want to he doesn't want to be responsible for having for for killing people. And uh, the the party that that party in the in the in the in the hall in Fuller Hall is just to me a kind of a schizophrenic experience it's it's celebratory and and horrible at the same time it's just it's like a nightmare and i think he's uh we're seeing that through his eyes seeing some of the participants laughing and drinking and high-fiving partying and and the other half uh being incredibly distraught so that's that's probably the most subjective sequence in the film where we're really in Oppenheimer's head. And that was one of the early scenes that Chris asked me to start thinking about. Um, I went to, I think I went, I, I was invited to the last day of dailies, which was done here. They'd been doing all the dailies on, on location, but the last day of dailies was done here in, in Los Angeles and at the lab. It included shots of uh, Oppenheimer in the gray interrogation room where the background is, is shifting in relation to him the same visuals, visual idea occurs in the Fuller Hall scene where he's static, but the background is his world, his visual world around him is is coming unglued a little bit. It's coming unmoored, and he's feeling a bit ungrounded. And um, so that that actually was the first sound that he asked me to start start working on. And and uh, you know, happily we arrived at that pretty quickly. Um, the visuals are so uh, convey so much, and I got a very strong feeling just seeing the, the uh, MOS dailies of um, what 
Killian was portraying, which was confusion and 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 um, disjointedness. And then there were, and then really, we all of us contributed to that scene. That we contributed lots of sounds. Chris and Jim Lane, the editor, uh, assembled them in different ways. We did some more work because that, that that Fuller Hall scene is probably the, one of the ones that we worked on the most, put the most effort into, and really worked on it until and changed it and tried different things up until the very end, where music would enter um, when when the crowd would go silent and we just hear their movement and not their voices. Um, all those elements were um, were kind of work in progress throughout the mix and um, while we are still searching to for ways to make it make it more impactful and to really drive that point home that this was this was the um, the turning point in the movie. You mentioned a moment of silence with the audience. Um, it's interesting. I've read some people talking about silence in this film and, and treating it as though silence is just one thing where you can get many different noises, but there's so many different kinds of silence. You mentioned with the silence before um, the blast hits everyone, um, but we've got in the, in the hall sequence that it's a different kind of silence. And then depending on the locations, um, it shifts. What were the conversations that you you had with Chris about when Ludwig's music is is not playing? That we are um, going to have longer sequences, perhaps more than uh, the usual Christopher Nolan film, um, with various kinds of silence in them. Well, that that's really uh, that was really Chris experimenting with with where silence would be. He's he's uh, he's. He's a, a really astute sound designer himself and, um, and a pre- knows and appreciates the power of sound design. And, um, uh, and that there are moments where music can kind of let the audience off the hook in a way. That is, present them with a interpretation of what, of what they should or could be feeling um, at that moment. And um, to play silence kind of leaves this question mark hanging in the air of what's, you know, what, 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 are, what are they going through? What, what are the characters going through right now? And um, so the power of silence is tremendous in that sense. Of course, there's nothing actually silent in the movie. There's always some sounds playing, and and in the Trinity test scenes, the forty seconds of you know, quiet uh, before the this shockwave hits, um, and that allows us to hear Oppenheimer breathing, the other participants, other spectators shifting and moving around. Um, but just to hear his breathing, I think, brings us so much into his, into his heart and into his world. Um, that that and it does us and does a much more powerful job of it than music would. Um, but a lot of these things are just they're 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 there's not a blueprint when we start. There's not a an understanding of how everything is going to sound. It's, it's really the, the, um, 
the uh, the book is left open throughout, and we're we're all just trying every day to make every scene as powerful as we can, and and we those key scenes um, were were long and gestating a long time, and long and long at arriving at the um, at the final final uh, the final you see in the year in the film. Um, you used the word quiet and thinking about some of the quieter moments in Los Alamos and then just contrasting that looking back to an earlier film you worked on, There Will Be Blood, um, and how quietness exists in that film. And obviously, tonally, the films are very, very different. Um, but just in terms of location, I was really fascinated with the way the Los Alamos was was captured both visually and aurally. Um I'm assuming, obviously, there's a wind. I've, I've sort of been there, and there's a wind that cuts through that place. Um, but finally ending up with what we have, of what we hear of, of Los Alamos. Um, could you talk a little bit about that and and sort of capturing that environment for audiences? The town, the town itself? The town itself, yeah, and just and around it. It felt it was quite amazing because we're jumping back and forth in time, because we're in that room where he's being interrogated and because of the early aspects of his life. I, it was quite incredible to suddenly be in this this space that that has a very very singular sort of sound to it yeah and and the contrast in in the visual of the the gray room which is this depressing little you know uh, storage room that they they made uh, for the uh, the hearing compared to the vastness of the New Mexican desert yeah that's a great uh, a great visual that re- that that reality handed chris in a way, uh, he, of course, he built the town, the production designer, and, and you know, they, they built that town from scratch. Well, for one thing, we're in so many locations throughout the film. We jump around from Los Alamos to Pasadena to Berkeley to, um, to New Jersey to, to Washington, D.C., San Francisco. So we're, we're all over the place, and we wanted to... Um, really try to create a, a, a shorthand of, of where we were and uh, create a real personality for each location, especially the locations that were in a lot like Los Alamos. And Los Alamos was an interesting place in that it was a, a military facility. It was a military base guarded by army troops, but the majority of the population were scientists who often chafed at the restrictions that were put on them um, in this army base. So there was, there was home to these people for a couple of years. So yeah, creating, creating the, the sounds of Los Alamos was a, a lot of um, domestic sounds as well as military sounds. We've tried all sorts of things. We, we, uh, you, you hear army vehicles in the background, big heavy diesel trucks. You hear always people because it was, there were, a lot of people working there, thousands of people working there. The town itself was bigger than what we see in the film. There's more of it that just wasn't shown. Chickens, you know, presumably they had they they had chickens. They had they had probably little backyard gardens. 
So we just wanted to create a sense of this dichotomy of, of civilian scientists and um, and military officers during wartime when th- they held a lot more sway than they would have, would have in, in peacetime. Sort of the other thing that, that that's, that's quite fascinating about that is that we're dealing with um, a place where state-of-the-art technology and science is, is being employed, but we are still very much in an analog era. Yeah. And and it, it it is that fascinating contrast. And again, with sounds, it's it's there's there's no dig, digital age here. No matter what's happening in the labs, and no matter what we're experiencing as audiences from the subjective perspectives, um, the scene those scenes in the film, this is still a very very analog environment. Yeah, it's remarkable uh, that they pulled this off, and, and in such short time. You know, I think that's that's. That's testament to, to Oppenheimer himself. I'm sure the the bomb would have been developed eventually, uh, but I don't think it would have. I think he was the man that could make it happen that fast, and um, because of his energy and his intellect. Uh, and yes, it was it was a lot of bailing wire and duct tape, as you see when they're when they're loading the bomb into the tower. It's it seems a bit jury rigged. Um, <laughs> To the extent of, of as they're as they're hoisting it up to the top of the tower, they're they're putting the rolled up mattresses underneath it. Should the wire snap and bomb fall, it would limit the damage to the bomb. Uh, yeah, Chris wanted to show all of that. It was it was the fact that this thing was done so quickly, and you know people were working days and days without sleep towards the end, and yet it still worked. Uh, it's a testament to the brilliance of Oppenheimer and and the entire team there. Um, could you talk a little bit about discussions that um, you had with Ludwig and, and Chris about the way that music interacts with the sound in the film um, and any work that you did in advance or any thoughts you had in advance about how that might interact, if at all, that was sort of on, on the horizon? Yeah, we didn't actually have discussions about that. Yeah. And in fact, I, I, I often think that that those discussions are uh, not that productive. Like you don't want to, I don't think you want to go into a project with any fixed like notions, a blueprint that you, that you have to follow. And, and um, I've always felt that, that a very rich sound design track can exist alongside with um, a very rich music track. Um, the um, metaphor I often use is that music is the sounds that the audience hears, but the sound design of the sounds that the characters hear, they're the sounds that are in their world and that invite us into their world and subtly help us to imagine being in in the character's world. Um, and to me, that's the uh, that's the real magic of using sound in, in film is that we have this this tool that's uh, that most people don't even take notice of really when they're watching a film. They, the assumption is that all those sounds were recorded on the day they shot the film. And, and, and we can use that to our benefit by including a lot of little details that if, if they were thought about too much might not, uh, or, or listened to individually might seem out of place or odd, but, but in the context of the scene, uh, they, provide these entry points or these um what we call them sort of like uh 
sense memories of, of what a place might feel like to be in. And to me, sound provides a lot of information in that. I mean, in my, in my own life, I see, I've noticed how sounds affect me and try to use that to the benefit of the films um, whenever I can. Uh, I, I think sound is the, the filmmaker's secret weapon in a lot of ways. Just finally, um, Joe, I have this idea that um, that all the people who've worked with Chris on a regular basis over the years, uh, after making a film like this, that you're just waiting for the phone call where he's going to call you up and just say, so we're going to have the Big Bang. I need to get the sound for the Big Bang. That's the last thing we need to do, and then my life will be done. I'll be happy. I've done everything. But I was just thinking about the challenge of, getting a call from Chris to work on Oppenheimer and what's expected of you. Um, could you t talk a little bit about how your relationship has developed over the course of the last two decades and also where Oppenheimer, and I, this might not necessarily be an easy thing to answer, but where Oppenheimer sits within that body of work that you've collaborated with Chris on in terms of the challenges that you've faced? Well, it's been so always challenging. A lot of effort is put into the soundtrack and, um, Chris is one of those directors who does realize the uh, the impact that sound can have, and our working method really hasn't changed much over the years. We, when I started on the Prestige, I I think we you know we usually have a brief discussion uh, very early, uh, usually before you start shooting, and um, but it's not about you know, anything too specific generally. It's, it's, um, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to express myself through sound. And even though, even though, you know, filmmaking is a collaborative medium, um, very much so. And I, I love the collaboration and find collaborating with my team and the rest of the filmmakers of the film very satisfying and enriching you can also look at sound as a form of self-expression and a form of interpreting what you're seeing on screen right sonically and uh so i'm given that time by chris to do what i think is is right and then i get feedback from him i send over mixes of scenes and uh and and get feedback we at that point we have something tangible to talk about rather than ab abstraction of sound which is which is an abstract medium, and it's very hard to to discuss. But if you have a if you have a reference point, if you have a, a sound that's you know that you've made or, or created or a scene that you that I've mixed, um, you have something to respond to to say, yeah, this is great, I like this, or this is good, but what if this happened, or this is terrible, start over. So uh, it it's more it's more of a process like that, more of a uh, back and forth, uh, uh, you know, practically commenting on, on the work itself. And I find, I find that to be very freeing and it gives me that, that those, those months to, to really get inside the film myself. It, it's, it's very fun, very challenging and always very satisfying working with Chris. Richard, thank you very much for joining us today and congratulations on the film. Thank you. It's a pleasure talking to you. If you have an idea for a future AMPS podcast or just want to tell us what you want to hear more of, please get in touch. You can reach out to us via email at ampspodcast at gmail.com or via Twitter, which is at ampspodcast. We'd love to hear from you 
and thanks for listening. Are you looking for more audio-related podcasts? Well, we're a part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to check out the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.